Well, I invite you to open up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, part of our worship, the central part of our worship is not the singing and the praising, but it also includes the careful reading and hearing the Word of God preached. And so this morning we're picking up in our series through 1 Corinthians, we're picking up where we left off a few weeks ago here in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Um, If you'll recall, this section continues to address the divisions and the conflict in the church. And how the church is properly to be built up and how it's to be preserved in order that the gospel might flourish. That's, That's the theme. That's what Paul is continuing to argue for here in these opening chapters. Um, We're going to begin reading in verse 18, but for the sake of context, let's begin in verse 16. This is God's Word, brethren. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Amen. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me again? Our Father, we do adore you as our God, and we... We know that wisdom resides with you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we pray, Lord, as this, this hour as we study your word, that, that you would teach us, that we, that we, Lord, would not hear the words of man, but that we would hear the word of God, that you would impart to us wisdom, that you would speak to us exactly what we need to hear in order that we may Be about our Father's business, as it were. And, Lord, magnify and glorify Your name. So implant Your Word deeply into our hearts and minister to us by the Holy Spirit through Your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I often tell my children that my duty and responsibility as a parent to raise them in the Lord calls me at times... To give them good things, even things they don't deserve. But sometimes, and at other times, it calls me to withhold things. Or remove things as a matter of discipline or punishment. As parents, to properly train our children in what is right and what is wrong, sometimes we we woo them with the good. We do that to demonstrate our love for them. Right To encourage them, to give them positive reinforcement. But other times we are called to be the bad guy. 
we're called to discipline them, sometimes in painful ways. As part of our duties as parents, in some sense, is to, to put like, like a holy fear in them of sin and punishment. And we train our children this way because this is how the Lord also deals with His children. Sometimes our Lord showers us with blessing. You know, those times where we kind of pinch ourselves and we're just overwhelmed as we enjoy the smile and the favor of God and things are going so well. And this leads, to, uh, leads us to love Him and serve Him with greater fervency. As Paul says in Romans 2, the goodness of God, it's meant to lead you to repentance. But isn't there other times as well where we have to endure the chastening hand of the Lord? And He feeds us with lack. The bread of sorrows, maybe. Maybe He hides His face from us. Maybe He chastens us for sin or this or that. And, and He does this so that we might learn to properly fear Him and, and to turn away from evil and to trust Him even when there's no earthly incentive to do so. This is captured well in Romans 11.22 where Paul says, Behold the kindness and the severity of God. Well, I think this perspective is helpful when we consider how the Apostle Paul is handling the situation and the problems here in 1 Corinthians. In fact, in the, in the very next chapter, in chapter 4, verse 21, he's going to say, what do you want or what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Pastoral ministry always entails both. Sometimes God's people need the rod of correction, metaphorically speaking, of course. And sometimes they need love and, 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 and a spirit of gentleness. But it's all aimed for their growth and maturity in the Lord. In this sense, Paul has been writing three whole chapters now about the serious sin of division and worldly wisdom in that church. There's no doubt that he began with the positive. If you recall, just the opening statements of, of chapter 1, they're sanctified in Christ Jesus. They weren't lacking in any spiritual gift, he told them. They could be assured that the Lord would sustain them guiltless in the day of Christ. But since then, he's also had to get pretty firm. And I think in verse 16 and 17, is perhaps the most firm of all because he threatens them with eternal judgment. He gives them this frightening rod of correction, as it were, in a sense that, Corinthians, you need to take this seriously. You need to shape up because if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. No more Mr. Nice Guy. He's not messing around. He's saying, brothers and sisters, if you continue on this path, you risk judgment. But if we're familiar with the ways of the Lord, the ways of His ministers, you know, the Lord never leaves us with that frightening threat of judgment, does He? Because right on the heels of this warning, Paul then drops one of the most astounding encouragements in the entire epistle, right here in verse 22. Don't you know that all things are yours? And that you are Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are God's special possession as well. 
Yes, at times you need to hear this threatening of, of punishment and judgment. But, but just like when we would discipline our children with a rod of correction, don't we always follow that up by binding up those wounds, taking them into our arms, holding them, crying with them perhaps, encouraging them with our affirmation of love, and giving them the hope that if they turn from their sin in Christ, there is forgiveness. That's what Paul is doing here. I think he brings the rod of correction in a sense, but then he follows it up with this love and spirit of gentleness. And I think that's important for us to see because, you know, by my count, um, this is the ninth sermon in a row that's essentially on the same topic. And it's you know, three whole chapters in this opening, uh, 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 these opening chapters where Paul addresses the same topic. Wisdom infiltrating the church, worldly wisdom that is, divisions and factions, a misunderstanding of the church, a misunderstanding of ministers, an undervaluing of church leaders, an overvaluing of church leaders. Why has he spent so much time on it? It's because these matters are important. They are serious And the Corinthians needed to hear the seriousness of it. And we do as well. Both with the rod of correction and the spirit of judgment. A spirit of gentleness. Excuse me. And this is important to us, brother, because you know what? Churches split all the time. They split all the time. I'm familiar with two confessionally reformed churches that have split just in the last year. Churches just like this one. Both of them split over the nature of ministry and matters of leadership. That's why Paul lingers so long on this topic, this wisdom, this leadership, this divisiveness, because of how easily the standards of this world infiltrate the church. How easily we place preachers and teachers and and people, um, um, and we, we kind of you know, come around them and gather around them according to our own personal preferences and and despise others and separate ourselves from others over them. It still goes on all over the place. Paul deals with it at length. And you know, one thing he says here too is that one reason this so frequently happens is because otherwise good people think that they are doing the right thing. You know that's why churches split, right? They're not out to split the church. Only the worst of the worst are out to split the church. But they they don't think that they're out to split the church, but they are out to get their own way. They're blind to how the preferences and standards of this world have have overshadowed the mind of Christ. And as Paul says here, they are self-deceived. So in this sense, Paul warns, but he also brings the gospel to bind up and heal. He gives them the law, he gives them the gospel, and what do we see? But once again, he directs their gaze upward above the things of this world, and he calls them to look to Christ and the wealth of riches that we have in Him, because when we see that, as Paul concludes here in these last two verses, when we see the wealth of riches that we have in Christ, we won't have the time or the care for these petty divisions that often turn the church inside out. So two things then. 
that demonstrate this from our passage today. Two points today. We see deception leads to destruction. And then we'll see that want leads to wealth. First, here in verses 18 through 20, I want you to see how Paul doubles down a little bit on bringing this rod of warning as he warns them that deception leads to destruction. Look then uh, again at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Brother, I want you to stop for just a second and hear this first part. Just listen. Let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. Is there anything worse than self-deception? Is there anything more pitiful than someone who is self-deceived? It's a frightening thought. Not just to be wrong, to, to think that you're right when you're wrong. I believe it was Socrates who famously said that the beginning of all true wisdom is the recognition of one's own ignorance. You can't know anything until you know how ignorant you are, truly. Here then is the application of what he just said. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. But don't be self-deceived. Most people who are out to destroy God's temple don't know that they're actually doing that. They are deceived. They think they're doing the right thing when in fact they're doing the wrong thing. The Corinthians thought that in their pursuit of wisdom, they were pursuing godliness. That in their elevation of certain gifted leaders was the right and good and necessary thing for the good of the church. They thought the church needed this type of flowerly rhetoric. They thought the church needed to go deeper into things beyond just Christ and Him crucified. They thought this is what's lacking in our church. This is what our church needs. But by pursuing their own way, they had turned away from the mind of Christ and were thus self-deceived. And so Paul warns them, and he warns us as well. He warns us, let no one deceive himself because this is a common trap. Because you're walking in a minefield. He's not going to tell you that if it's not a real clear and present danger. Don't be self-deceived about where true wisdom is found. He again repeats what he's said many times already. To be wise, you must first become a fool. Don't you know this? Of course, what he means by this, he does not mean that we are to you know, throw off knowledge and learning and logic and all of that. Um, and he certainly doesn't mean that you're to throw out everything that you, know, you thought you knew before you can learn anything. Um, that's the idea made famous by Rene Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. He's the one who said, you know, you got to doubt everything. Everything you think you know before you can really, truly then know anything. And, and brethren, that's, that's pagan. Okay, that's unbelief. And what Paul means when he says that in order to be wise, you must become a fool is more along the lines of you must be thought of as a fool in the eyes of the world. 
Because true wisdom is found in the cross. True wisdom isn't found in you. True wisdom comes to you from the outside. And it comes to you chiefly through the message of Christ and Him crucified. And so, brethren, this kind of accords with everything, we el- everything else we know about the gospel. You know, the gospel is the gospel of great reversals. We often speak of it. You know, you must be emptied in order to be filled. You must see yourself as naked before you can be clothed. You must first renounce your own righteousness before you can receive the righteousness of Christ. You must see that you are pitiful and that you are filthy and that you are sinful in order then to be purified by the blood of Christ. You must first deny your own wisdom in order to be granted the wisdom of God in Christ. And so Paul hits on this theme of great reversal again, as he's he's done many times over and over again. He says, Corinthians, you don't understand how the gospel turns things upside down. You don't understand that there is an infinite abyss between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the cross, and they don't meet. They don't come together. They are contrary to one another, and they can't be mixed And so he puts his finger on that sore. He points his finger and says, Thou art the man. Don't be deceived by thinking too highly of yourselves. You want to be truly mature. You want to be truly wise. You want to be truly spiritual. Turn to Christ and and, and see in the mind of Christ the spirit of love and humility and servitude. Here, clearly by this exhortation, There were some in the church who apparently thought that maybe they didn't need pastors or teachers or leaders. And that's something that Paul will address later in the book. There are also some who had their own ideas of ministry and leadership. And so they gathered around their favorites, which caused division. Again, an undervaluing and an overvaluing of ministers in ministry. But the the common thread between them both is that the church was using ministry and leadership in the work of the church as as an instrument of self-affirmation. They had decided already what they thought they needed to hear and how they needed to hear it. They had decided for themselves what kind of leaders they thought that the church needed and, 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 and uh, uh, and, and, and how they should cluster around this one or that one. Paul's message is, look, you've got to become a fool. You've got to become a fool to be wise. This points back to what he said already. But there's another element to this where he's also saying, don't you realize as well that if you don't become a fool, then you are deceived, and that God is actively bringing the wisdom of this age to nothing. Deception leads to destruction. That's why in verse 19 and 20, he then quotes two Old Testament passages. The first is Job 5.13. God catches the wise in their craftiness. Uh, When I preached through Job a few years ago, we continually saw how Job's friends often spoke very true things, but they were often wrong in how they applied them to Job's situation. Well, This verse, Job 5.13, is a life ass. And he basically tells Job, look, you can't fool God, which is true. No matter how wise or how crafty you are, God will find you out. So stop depending upon your own reasoning. 
Which is again what Job was doing all throughout that middle section. So Paul quotes, uh, quotes that and says, in this sense, God will catch you in your craftiness. He follows this up with a quote from Psalm 94.11. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Here the context of Psalm 94 is the manipulation and the corruption of those who are in um, powerful positions of leadership. And the psalmist is talking about how the plans and schemes of even the, the, of what the, you know, the best the world has to offer, um, they're futile in God's eyes. So Paul pulls these together and he's saying, don't be deceived. You may fool others. You may even fool yourself. But you cannot fool God. And those who persist in exalting human wisdom and human leadership are destroying and not building the church. They are self-deceived. They maybe have been deceived by others, but their deception will ultimately lead to destruction. And that's the negative side of the exhortation here. That's the rod of correction, the threat, the warning, the judgment. And, And brethren... It's something we all need to hear from time to time. Again, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we all need to be kind of humbled, in a sense frightened with a holy fear at how easily we're self-deceived. How easily we pursue our own will and ways in the church and don't even realize we're doing it. I mean, just look at the church around us in our day. The prevalence of church splits. The culture of the celebrity pastor. How common it is to church, for, uh, to church hop. The business-like approach to ministry. Or even an undervaluing of ministry altogether. I can kind of do my own thing and live my own way. These are all evidence of how easily we are self-deceived. And so the question is, will we center our hearts Center our lives, center our church, centers our our ideas of of ministry and the building of the church. We center these things around the mind of Christ. Will we see that we are God's building, God's field? That ministers are servants of God to build up that building. That God Himself is the one who gives the growth. That our growth comes chiefly through the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. Will we see that if we destroy this work or undermine it or sow division, that God will destroy such a one who works to destroy God's temple? Will we see and will we take care to ensure that we are not self-deceived by what seems to be wise in our own eyes? Will we listen and will we pursue wisdom according to the mind of Christ, which is the mind of love and service and lowliness and humility? That's the exhortation that's set before us today. But although this is all a firm warning, you know, again, aren't we thankful that the Lord never leaves us hanging there? Right? Our ultimate motivation isn't do this or else. That's kind of legal, that's law based motivation. The law has its purpose. Of course. But aren't we thankful that Paul often wounds, maybe frightens a bit, but then he turns to heal and encourage and build up. That's what we see secondly. 
Deception leads to destruction, but then want leads to wealth. Want leads to wealth. And what do I mean by want? Um, That's an old way of saying lack or poverty. Someone who's in need. And it goes right along with this theme of reversal. To be wise, you must first become a fool. Well, to be rich, you must first be impoverished. The point is, you are rich, you are wealthy, and it's not because of you, though. It's because you are in Christ and you are His. And that's how want leads to wealth. But look with me again at verse 21. So, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. In one sense, Paul turns to say, will you just stop saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos? This is following worldly wisdom. The wisdom that God will destroy. Remember, that's futile. And yet, at the same time, he's also now turning to look at it from a positive perspective. You know, the affirming side of don't boast in men. It brings judgment, but also... All things are yours. Frankly, brethren, this is a real, real kind of stunning conclusion to his argument here at the end of this chapter. All things are yours. The fact and reality that all things are yours is what serves to ground and reinforce everything he said about wisdom and ministry and leaders and the church. All things are yours. If you know that all things are yours, you'll stop acting this way. Well, what does he mean by that? Is it this one of the other places in, uh, you know, particularly in 1 Corinthians where he says these kind of weird things that we're not sure exactly, you know, do this uh, because of the angels. Okay, all right. And that's why we baptize for the dead. Right, Paul. All right, I got you. It's kind of like all things are yours. What does he mean by that? Well, brothers, as we break this down, let me just say, I think it's one of the most encouraging and even inspiring truths in all of Scripture. Um, It's amazing. But think first about what it means to boast in men. Let no one boast in men. You know that in one sense, when we boast in people, we're really boasting in ourselves? You know, think of how, you know, we feel when someone criticizes um, someone we love. We run to their defense. It's because in one sense, when people criticize like someone we love or someone we value, we, we kind of receive that criticism as coming toward us in some sense. We love this guy. We love this group. or We love this demographic. And so when people criticize it, it kind of calls our love and admiration of this into question. I mean, we see that particularly like with celebrities. Celebrities that are criticized and they go through tough times and you have all of these like, you know, special fan groups that uh, come to their aid. Fans just lose their mind. Or think of, you know, again, uh, politicians as well. Your favorite politician, if you have one. <laughs> I don't, but <laughs> your favorite politi- politician, your favorite political party in that sense. We kind of lose our minds sometimes um, and instantly dislike someone if they criticize that. 
Because when we attach ourselves too strongly to a creature, we live as though our confidence and our hope and our strength and and our blessing and our reputation and, and our very life as if it's bound up in them. So it means to boast in men. We're, we're boasting in the creature, but we're boasting in ourselves. And this is really dangerous in the church because we can begin to view leaders in the church and our relationship with them or our association to them as the key to our growth and flourishing. And Paul is saying, don't you see how foolish it is to attach yourself to people? When all things are yours? As if you somehow can't flourish without them? As if they're more important than the church itself? Now, note again carefully that the yours here is plural. It's a corporate yours, not an individual. It's just like we considered a few weeks ago when he says that that you are the temple. uh, That you are the temple of God. It's a particular I think it's a huge blind spot in our modern church age to constantly or consistently interpret corporate realities as if they were individual realities. You know, all things are mine, therefore self-empowerment. No, he's saying this to the church. All things are yours together. And so, in, in this sense, the best way to put this is all things belong to the church. Don't you know this? In fact, if you say all things belong to me as an individual, you're actually ironically falling into the, act, the error that Paul is condemning. The factualism, the individualism that he's, sent, that he's arguing against. All things are the churches. Why would you pick and choose a few leaders and kind of limit yourself just to their specific gifts when all things are yours? Why would you fight and divide over this leader or that leader as if the church needs this and has to have this and can't live without this when all things are yours? What you see, he's saying, that the church and the ministry is not for the sake of ministers, but that ministers are for the sake of the church. Don't you see that the church does not belong to ministers? whether Paul or Cephas or Apollos, but that Paul and Cephas and Apollos belong to the church? Something the Roman Catholic Church needs to hear. The church doesn't exist for the Pope. The church doesn't decide the canon. The church isn't the ultimate grounds in the sense of they determine truth. It's the other way around. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, the leaders in the church are for the good of the church. Ministers aren't to compete with one another. Ministers aren't to go their own way, uh, set up their own preferences, look out for their own success, uh, pursue their own career aspirations, see ministry as a, as a means for their own self-fulfillment. Ministers belong to the church. They are servants in the church. They are given for the growth of the church. All of the emphasis is on the church. So sure, some are gifted one way and some are gifted another way. Some are strong here. Some are weak here. Some do some things poorly. Some do things better. And vice versa. But dividing over them, setting up favorites, 
represents a self-deceived perspective on the nature of church and the nature of ministry. And it doesn't realize that everything in God's plan is designed to promote the flourishing of the church. I think we kind of, at this point, need to take stop and take a deep breath. Because we can so easily read over verse 22 and not really understand just how astounding it is. How life-changing it can be. Right? He says, all things are yours, Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world. Wow. Or life, or death, or the present, or the future. Did you see that all things are yours? Here, it, it needs to be I guess pointed out, it kind of echoes the end of Romans 8. You know, one of our favorite, I'm sure, one of our favorite portions of Scripture, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ. This language here kind of mirrors that. Paul's like grasping. And it, like, you know, he's exhausting the limits of human language. He's, he's using language that's just so all-encompassing. The world. Can you get anything more than the world? Right? And, he, and he's trying to the best of his ability to just describe how grand and how all-encompassing this is. It's all yours. One commentator famously pointed out, many have followed him in this, he pointed out how these five things kind of represent the ultimate tyranny of human existence. The world and life and death, the present and the future. Because of sin, we are enslaved to these things. In Adam, we are bound to this world. Our perspective is limited to this world. And the world and its lusts are passing away. Life, we actually have very little control over our life, and it's very short and it's fleeting. It's a puff of smoke in the wind. Death, who can defeat death? In sin, death holds ultimate sway, tyranny over everyone. Um, the present, again, we really have very little control over the present. You don't even know for sure that you're going to be alive when the sun rises tomorrow morning. The future? How many of us often lie awake at, in bed at night thinking about the future? Because there's so much fear and uncertainty and anxiety over the future. Just in this life, think about eternity. Think of 10 billion years from now. If you can't control tomorrow, can you control what's going to happen in 10 billion years? No, we are helpless. And enslaved to these things. But Paul is saying, don't you see that in Christ, not only will you conquer these things, but these things now have become your servants. You are master over them. This is the greatest of all reversals. We were once enslaved to the world. Now the world and everything in it serves to promote the good of the church. That's why we sang earlier, this is my Father's world. Life too. Our life. 
in the life of our Christian neighbor, serves for the good and flourishing of the church. Death, it's no longer a tyrant, it's lost its sting, as Spurgeon famously said, for the Christian, death is our butler, our servant to usher us into the presence of Christ. Even death serves us now. It's our servant to lead us to our Savior. The present, my times are in your hands. All things work together for my good. The future, well, we know what the future holds. We know that we will ever live with Christ. We know that every tear and every sorrow and every pain and everything that's uncomfortable and undesirable will be forever removed. And that when we've been there for 10,000 years, we'll never get tired of praising our God for His amazing grace. Brethren, what Paul says here is what our confession, chapter 5, paragraph 7, tries to capture when it says it's talking about providence and the decree of God, and it's saying all of God's decree, all of His sovereignty, everything that befalls in this life, is everything that happens in the world is aimed in a special manner to care for the church and to dispose all things for her good. That's what Paul is saying. In the gospel, because of Christ, the world and everything in it now serves the church. It's all for the good of the church. And that's how humanity has regained its lordship, our lordship over creation. Where Adam failed to take dominion, the second Adam has taken dominion. He is Lord of all. And if we are in Him, we are seated with Him in the heavenly places, and we rule and reign with Him even right now. No longer are we slaves to the destruction and the corruption of these tyrannical forces and realities. The church is the ultimate purpose and goal of everything, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Brethren, this is incredibly practical. It's incredibly practical. Think about Think about your loved one who has died. Think about that difficulty, providence that you're enduring. Think about sickness or cancer or disease that you or your loved one is going through. Think about how just in your day-to-day life, like nothing ever seems to work out like you want. Like, like all your plans seem to fail and People hurt you and and they thwart your desires and and there's so much uncertainty and fear of what tomorrow will bring. Think about as well, even the good things in life, how God has blessed you and how God has shown you grace and you see His hand at work and how in many ways you have flourished and prospered and enjoyed many things. You bring that down to brass tacks, all of those things, good and bad, in some mysterious way, serve for the good of your soul and the good of the church. For the Christian, every possible experience in life and in death, as we sang earlier, and as the Heidelberg Catechism says as well, Every possible experience belongs to the Christian. It belongs to us in the sense that it serves our good and it will end up in our good. But you won't see that if you don't look with the eye of faith. 
You won't see that unless you look through the lens of Christ and Him crucified. Because if you're looking with the eyes of this world, worldly wisdom, there's no redeeming things that are unhelpful and undesirable and bad. To the world, the church, if it's broken and scattered and persecuted, that means she's losing. To the world, success means, you know, powerful earthly leaders. And, and wickedness and unbelief suppressed in our society and neighborhoods. And outward prosperity um, and, 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 and flourishing of gospel truths in the streets. But when we look to the eye, with the eye of faith, Hebrews 2.8, we don't yet see everything in subjection to Him. Right? We look around and say, is Christ really ruling and reigning? Look at the state of our society. But when we look with the eye of faith, we do see Him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned. That means He's ruling. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of His death. And you know what? He conquered and rules and reigns through the suffering of His death as well. So that's what Paul kind of ends here, this section with, with this grand truth. And he, and he kind of wraps a bow on it with his closing doxology, saying, everything is yours. In verse 23, you are Christ, and Christ is God's. You don't have everything as if it's just all yours. No, want leads to wealth. It's, it's because you have nothing that you possess everything. Because it's not you that has everything. It's Christ and you are in Him. And brethren, there's a world of comfort in that. Knowing that we are Christ and that He is ours. There's a world of comfort in knowing that, that all things belong to us because all things belong to Christ and we are in Him, and He loves us, and in this sense, everything belongs to God as well. How does, how does Christ belong to God? Well, I do need to note here, you don't in any way interpret this as if Jesus is not on the same level as the Father. Or, if the, or you know, as if the second person of the Trinity is subordinate to the Father in any manner. Paul's not talking about the second person of the Trinity per se, as God. He's speaking of Christ's humanity. And this is really important to his whole thesis because Christ took our flesh. He assumed our form. And what did he do? He lowered himself to the point of a servant in reference to his saving work. A servant for the good of the church. Even Christ is a servant of the church. Even Christ in his humanity is a gift to the church for the well-being of the church. And if Christ is God's servant as part of God's building of God's church, then we are of God as well because we are in Christ. And is there anything more all-encompassing than all things belong to God? Is there anything that He doesn't own? Well, if we are God's, then everything belongs to us as well. So brethren, as we bring this to a conclusion this morning, when we see that all things are ours in Christ, then those petty divisions and preferences, we see them for how narrow and constricted and tiny you know, our preferences are 
in the grand scheme of reality. You know, when we think of our inheritance as small and insignificant, we're prone to argue over it, like toddlers fighting over their favorite toy. Right? It's mine. It's not yours. But when we say that everything is ours, can't we then have a, you know, a spirit of Abraham when they're dividing the portion of the land and Abraham says, Lot, take the best portion. Take it. You can have what you can have the best of the best. Because I know in the end that God's given me everything. That's the perspective here. When the scriptures bring that rod of judgment, we are warned when we oppose God's will and God's work, we will reap what we sow, as we heard earlier. Paul leaves us with this astounding love and hope of the gospel as our ultimate motivation and assurance, assuring us that all things are ours. We don't have fear of judgment in Him. And we don't place our hope and confidence in people. And because everything is ours, now we're free. We're free to give it all away. If you had endless money and endless resources... Wouldn't you see then how free you are to give it all away? How free you can be and not cling to your rights, to your preferences, to your will, to your way. That's what Paul is saying here in relation to the church. The mind of Christ is the mind of love and humility and service towards one another. And there's judgment in that, yes. But the ultimate reality is, why fight over scraps when you have everything? And everything serves for the good of the church. And if everything serves for the good of the church and you're part of the church, everything serves for your good and the glory of God. Well, brother, in this way, let us then again look and see our inheritance in Christ and what He has had and bow the knee to Him in love and faith and adoration that we may do what God has called us to do, to build up the body of Christ, to proclaim His excellencies and bring glory to His matchless name. Amen. Let's pray.